Before we start the show, we here at the Golden Silent Films podcast want to welcome you to that most special time of year. You guessed it, we are coming up on Silent Movie Day on September 29th, just a few short weeks away. And if you want to find out more info, just head on to Facebook, search Silent Movie Day, or stop at the website silentmovieday.org. There you will find an in-depth list of events that you find folks can participate in to celebrate. No matter where you are, the United States, the world, there are awesome and amazing events to hop into and celebrate our favorite photo plays. So do enjoy your silent movie day, everybody. It's going to be a fun one. The reception of the play was remarkable, but in no city was it as remarkable as in Boston, the theatrical mecca for the Cambridge students. The opening night is rapidly becoming historic. Harvard evidently had different ideas as to the truth of Miss Young's comedy. The students demonstrated their opinions with violent mass methods. But this local disturbance only served to make the play more widely known and give it impetus for a long run elsewhere. It was a creditable success for anyone. For a young woman of 32, it was distinctly gratifying, wrote the Harvard Crimson. But how would the Billy Haynes starring 1926 theatrical release of Brown of Harvard fare? Let's matriculate together. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Theater of the Golden Silent Films podcast and our highly anticipated back-to-school scholastic super school-tacular. Celebrating the return of our local cathedrals of higher learning, our esteemed adjunct faculty, here at the podcast, suggest you have your books covered and your trapper keepers ready for some great learning and furious note-taking. Last episode, we found ourselves all up in 1926, and this episode will be no different. Today, we will be studying the work of acclaimed actor William Billy Haynes and his role as the titular Tom Brown of 1926's Brown of Harvard, where we will vicariously participate in school shenanigans and collegiate hijinks, mock dweebs, and maybe watch some football along the way. Before we start the audio PowerPoint presentation for this lesson, we can't forget to give you the Golden Silent Films podcast social media review. As per usual, follow Golden Silence Cast on Instagram for up-to-date info on this little podcast. And for everyone on Twitter, just follow at Golden Silence 1 or search for Golden Silence Cast and we will be there. And these sites and screen names will be, the will be the episode descriptions in case you're interested in checking us out and would love to have you on board. At both of these social spaces, you'll get behind-the-scenes pics and info, upcoming episodes, and other fun and cool silent movie-related materials. And probably some cats. Also, if you're listening to this program on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please leave us a review, a rating, or both. All those things, ratings, reviews, subscriptions, help a lot. We have been stuck in single-digit reviews for quite a while with Apple and would love to break that barrier and move to double digits. Let all of your wildest review-leaving dreams come true and help our little show grow. Whether getting us more exposure in the vast halls of podcasts or letting us know what we can do better, we appreciate the feedback and endeavor to bring you the best show possible. And do subscribe to the Golden Silent Films podcast. While our output can be unpredictable, if you are subscribed, you will never miss an episode, and the moment we release some new content, it will be downloaded right to your listening device of choice. And we have a lot of cool stuff coming down the pipe, and we don't want you to miss a second. As we roll into the ninth episode of Season 2, 
And overall, episode 23, we better get to it before the class bell rings. The version we will be discussing today can be found on YouTube. Like many a great silent film we've covered before and after, we turn to the magical world of user uploads and streaming. This was a solid version to sit back and watch. There was no music, generic or otherwise, which is always kind of a bummer. Even if it's just generic, time-appropriate tunes, I feel it adds to the overall experience. And also, before we get too far along, I wanted to talk a bit about a book that played a huge, huge role in this episode. Pivotal, if you will. That book is called Wisecracker, The Life and Times of William Haynes, Hollywood's First Openly Gay Star. And it was written by William J. Mann. I cannot praise this book enough. It was so insanely informative and really does such a good job in telling the life story of William Haynes. But even better than just a book about a life, it really puts the actor's life in the context of the times. This is a must read for any fan of silent film and classic Hollywood in general. Billy Haynes was a mover and a shaker in his time, and there is so much cool stuff about many of the folks he hung out with, partied with, and just generally interacted with. Now, there's no paid advertising here, just a podcast that wants everyone out there to read this book. It is fantastic, and I cannot, cannot recommend it enough. So, with that being said, I still enjoyed the YouTube version, and it's totally worth checking out. It's a great movie, and it's definitely worth your time. And as always, feel free to pause the Golden Silent Films podcast now, watch Brown of Harvard, and then head on back for a little bit of infotainment amongst friends. Now, as we prepare for the day's film class, let's learn about some of the names and stories of the folks involved with bringing Brown of Harvard to cinematic life. And to do that, let's start with the main man himself, the guy I just talked about the book about his life, Mr. William Billy Haynes. Charles William Haynes was born on January 2nd, 1900 or January 1st, if you were to ask him. He was born in Stanton, Virginia, the third child of George Adam Haynes, a cigar maker, and Laura Virginia Haynes. He had four younger siblings, Lillian, born in 1902, Anne, 1907, George Jr., 1908, and Henry, lastly, born in 1917. He would become fascinated with stage performance and motion pictures at an early age, spending hours watching early silent films in the local theaters. Haynes ran away from home at the age of 14, seeking a life with more financial opportunities, above and below board. For this journey, he was accompanied by an unidentified young man whom Haynes would refer to as his boyfriend. The, the pair went first to Richmond, Virginia, and then to Hopewell, which had a reputation for debauchery. They both got jobs working at the local DuPont factory for $50 a week. To supplement their income, they opened a dance hall. Haynes' parents, frantic over his disappearance, tracked him through the police to Hopewell. Haynes did not return home with them, remaining instead in Hopewell and sending money back home to help in support of the family. The couple would remain in Hopewell until most of the town was destroyed by a terrible fire in 1915. Haynes would then move for the opportunities afforded to him under the bright lights of New York City. Whether his boyfriend accompanied him is unclear. Following the bankruptcy of the family business and the mental breakdown of his father, George Sr., the family headed off to Richmond in 1916. 
Haynes would join them there in 1917 to help support them and make the most of his time in this time of familial turmoil. As his father recovered and gained employment, Haynes would return to New York City in 1919, settling into the burgeoning gay community of Greenwich Village. He worked a variety of jobs and was for a time the kept man of an older woman before eventually becoming a model. The movie world would discover Haynes as part of the Goldwyn Pictures' New Faces of 1922 contest, and the studio signed him to a $40 a week contract. Along with fellow contest winner Eleanor Boardman, they traveled to Hollywood in March of that year. So now, for the faithful listeners out there, if you are playing along with the Golden Silent Films podcast drinking game, and you have a drink every time we mention a Hollywood contest, then this is your time to drink, but it will not be your last time to drink in this episode, so keep that in mind. So, Hayes' career began slowly, as he appeared in extras and bit parts, mostly uncredited stuff. His first significant role was in 1923's Three Wise Fools. He soon was garnering positive shout-outs from critics, and the studio began building him up as a new star. Despite his flirtations with the big time, he continued to play small, rather unimportant parts. When his home studio lent him to Fox in 1923 for The Desert Outlaw, he finally got the opportunity to play a meteor role in the silver screen. 1924 would see MGM loan him out to Columbia Pictures for a five-picture deal. The first of these, The Midnight Express in 1924, received all-around great reviews, and Columbia offered to buy his contract. The offer was refused, and Haynes continued doing less than spectacular stuff at MGM. Haynes, despite the slow growth, still suffered from a lack of confidence. In his book Wisecracker, author William J. Mann explains the turnaround in the psyche of Billy Haynes. Mann writes, Billy realized he needed to safeguard the lifestyle he so prized by making himself more valuable. He may have also realized that a top star salary could buy much more in the way of fine clothes and furniture. Now, despite getting a modest pay raise, other stars in the studio were still way ahead of him in the pecking order. He needed to get past any self-induced mental roadblocks and break through. At the time, he was working on a 1925 film called Tower of Lies with the legendary Lon Chaney. Mann continues, such a, dispar such a disparity in income must have been a motivating factor in both his determination and his dissatisfaction. He reported back to work on the set of Tower of Lies. I argued the thing out with myself, Haynes would recall. Why should I be afraid of the camera? It was an inanimate object and couldn't reach out and bite me on the chin. It had the faculty of photographing thought as well as features. I made up my mind that I would think more of what I was doing, to try and live the role. This new mindset really opened up a new gear in Haynes. The handsome actor scored his first big personal success with Brown of Harvard in 1926 that we're about to talk about. It was in this flick that he really solidified his screen image, a young, arrogant man who was humbled by the last reel. He returned repeatedly to that formula over the next several years. But the starring role in Brown of Harvard wasn't given to the up-and-coming actor all willy-nilly. To explain how he got the part, we should start with a bit of background in how the search for the perfect Tom Brown came about. William Mann writes, Several newspaper accounts detailed director Jack Conway's search for an authentic college kid to play Tom Brown, Pickford's roommate and the title role. Conway tested scores of athletes at UCLA, USC, and Harvard. 
He eventually told the press that college boys simply do not act collegiate enough, so he had to resort to an actor. Billy Haynes wanted the role so badly. He saw what a great opportunity it would be and did everything he could to get it. But it wouldn't be so easy. Haynes would later remark, I determined that no one but William Haynes would play the role of Tom Brown. The executives were just as determined that anyone but William Haynes would play it. Jack Conway was strongly opposed to the casting of William Haynes as Tom Brown. Again, we turn to William Mann for insight into Conway's lack of confidence in Haynes. Mann writes, There is no personal animosity. Despite the director's aggressively heterosexual posture, he had no personal bias against homosexuals. It was simply that given Billy's resume, there was little to recommend him. Tom Brown, despite the ostensible star Jack Pickford, carried the script. Conway saw nothing in Billy's previous work to convince him he had the power to work that magic. It would be Willie Haynes' friend and supporter, studio head Irving Thalberg, that would intervene and get Haynes into the picture as Tom Brown, and there wasn't much Conway could do at that point. Mann explains, These were still the days when producers rode roughshod over directors, where casting decisions and running length and final script approval still came from the front office. In addition to the cinematic success filling Haynes' life in 1926, the year would also bring success in love. That lifelong love would come in the form of Jimmy Shields. Friends who recounted the meeting certainly didn't sugarcoat those fateful first meetings. On a trip to New York in 1926, Haynes first met James Fickison Shields. Man explains the circumstances of this first fateful meeting. Their first encounter was hardly auspicious, the biographer writes. Jimmy was a sailor, and there were dozens of public parks and bathhouses in New York where men met each other. Jimmy was handsome, with a strong jaw and classic profile. Shorter than Billy, he was nonetheless well-muscled, freshly 21, and eager. Man goes on to say, Names weren't usually exchanged in parks and bathhouses. Often, there's very little dialogue at all. Somehow, Billy and Jimmy connected, and they arranged to get together again. Haynes convinced Shields to move to Los Angeles, promising to get him work as an extra. The pair soon began living together and viewed themselves as a committed couple, though newspapers did not mention their relationship. From humble beginnings came an incredibly deep love that stood the ups and downs of a fickle Hollywood, all the while standing the test of time. To say this relationship was trouble and consequence-free was far from the truth, but through it all, their love endured. So, after a string of hits with a who's who of Hollywood, the moving-going world accepted Haynes emotionally and financially. He would be a top-five box office star from 1928 to 1932. And at one point, surveys and uh, polls and such, he was the, num the number one most well-known person in Hollywood. The uncertain future of talkies broke a lot of folks, but Haynes was not one of them. His successful transition into the world of talkies started with the partial talkie alias Jimmy Valentine in 1928, also directed by Jack Conway. William Mann writes, It offered Billy the chance to move even further away from the formula, playing a safecracker who reforms. Alias Jimmy Valentine was fated to play a different role in his career, indeed in the career of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. Instead of being seen as Philly, Billy's first dramatic film, it would be seen as his and MGM's first talking picture. Mann continues, 
Once Conway finished shooting, Thalberg ordered the film back into production. Certain scenes would be reshot with dialogue. Billy got the call unexpectedly. Without any preparation, he was told he would be the first MGM star to face the microphone. Navy Blues in 1929 would be the first from the ground up all talk picture that Haynes would star in. In 1933, Haynes' personal life would throw a wrench into the success he was experiencing. The handsome star was arrested in a YMCA with a sailor he had picked up in Los Angeles' Pershing Square. Louis B. Mayer, the studio head at MGM at the time, gave Haynes an ultimatum. He had three choices. Choose between a mock lavender marriage, continue his relationship with Shields, or go on with this relationship with the sailor. Haynes chose Shields, and the two would remain together in a relationship for 47 years. This was not a choice conducive to a Hollywood career, so Mayer fired Haynes and terminated his contract. He made a few minor films after that before retiring from acting. Well, that's the legend, anyways. William Mann explains the fact and fiction behind this oft-told Hollywood story. Mann writes, A very pretty story, and what makes this particular Hollywood legend so fascinating is that, unlike so many of the others, it's probably true. Even if not entirely accurate, it's true in spirit. Most likely, Mayer did call Billy into his office and tell him he had better start playing the game. Billy refused, point blank, and so his career was ended. To say this latest run-in was what got Haynes booted from MGM would be a bit of an oversimplification. In fact, this is the perfect storm of business and personal issues that would ultimately lead to MGM not renewing his contract. This most recent situation was the last straw, though. On the business side of things, Haynes' films were seeing significant diminishing returns in the late 20s and early 30s. Though not always his fault, the William Haynes name on the marquee did not guarantee big money the way it had just a few years prior. The personal side of things also proved detrimental to his employment at MGM. Louis B. Mayer never really liked Billy Haynes or his lifestyle choices. The mogul could abide it as long as the profits were coming in. Billy, throughout his career, refused to play ball with Mayer. Now that the numbers weren't in his favor, Mayer was more than content to let Haynes' contract run out and be done with the whole thing. Another factor going against Haynes was the absence of good friend and supporter Irving Thalberg. When Mayer or others were down on Billy, Thalberg was always there to champion the talented actor. He always had Billy's back, but after suffering from some health issues, Thalberg was out of the scene and the business for a bit during this time. Without Thalberg's support behind him, the writing was on the wall for Billy. Mann writes, Billy once said, Louis B. Mayer kicked me out and it was the kindest thing he ever did for me. Free of the studio, Billy no longer had the despised studio chief hovering about, badgering him to get married, to play the game. His dismissal from MGM would also allow him to discover his life's true calling, design and decoration. With his on-screen time dwindling, Haynes and Shields started a business that kept them firmly ensconced in the world of the Hollywood elite. The two became antique collectors and the interior designers to the stars. His earliest clients included Wallace Beery and Douglas Fairbanks's, both junior and senior. Their clients would even include some of the biggest names in the entertainment world. More of those close friends and clients were Joan Crawford, Gloria Swanson, Marion Davies, and George Cukor. It never occurred to me to start an antique shop until after I was besieged by friends who saw my home after my first few housewarming parties, he told Haynes would tell reporters. They wanted me to get this, that, and the other thing. 
to help them buy antique furnishings. Some sent interior decorators to me. It interests me, naturally, but I was selfish enough to see that I could turn this hobby into an asset. It seemed a good investment, but even if I didn't make a nickel, I would still be richer by the experience and the pleasure. The couple would eventually settle in the Hollywood community of Brentwood, and their business was gangbusters right up until their retirement in the early 70s. In the 60s and 70s, their client list when it was killer, including the Reagans when, Reagan, when Ronald Reagan was governor of California. Joan Crawford would be one of many Hollywood friends who described them as the happiest married couple in Hollywood. Haynes and Shield remained together until Haynes' death, though that would bring its own sad tragedy. But we will dive into that sadness a little later in the show. Next, let's talk a little bit about Jack Pickford. John Charles Smith was born in 1896 in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, to John Charles Smith and Charlotte Hennessy Smith. As a child, he was known by his childhood nickname Jack. His alcoholic father deserted the family while Pickford was young, leaving the family impoverished. Out of desperation, Charlotte allowed Jack and his two sisters, Gladys and Lottie, to appear on stage, starting with Gladys, the oldest of the kids. This proved to be a great financial move for the family. As 1900 came in, the family moved to the land of opportunity, New York City, and soon the children were acting in plays across the United States. This hectic and busy lifestyle led to the family constantly moving separate ways. In 1910, eldest sibling Gladys signed with Biograph Studios. And if that name doesn't sound familiar, you might recognize her by her screen name of Mary Pickford. Following in her footsteps, the Smiths all would change their stage names to Pickford. Soon after signing with Biograph, Mary was able to land jobs for all the family, including the then 14-year-old Jack. When the Biograph company headed west to Hollywood, only Mary was to go until Jack pleaded his case to join the company as well. The company arrived in Hollywood, where Jack acted in bit parts during his time there. Mary soon knocked it out of the park and became one of the biggest names in the business, and by 1917 had signed a contract for $1 million with First National Pictures. As part of her contract, Mary saw to it that her family was taken care of, giving the now-named Jack Pickford pretty decent contract with the company as well. By the time he signed with First National, Pickford had played bit parts in almost 100 shorts and feature films. Though Pickford was considered a top-notch actor, he was seen as someone who never lived up to his potential. In 1917, he starred in one of the first major roles of his career as Pip in the adaptation of Charles Dickinson's Charles Dickens' Great Expectations, as well as the title role in Mark Twain's Tom Sawyer and its follow-up in 1918. In early 1918, after the United States entered World War I, Pickford joined the United States Navy as an enlisted sailor and was stationed at the 3rd Naval District in Manhattan, New York. By 23, his roles had gone... The year 1923, his roles had gone from several a year to one. By 1928, he finished his last film. Through the years, he tried getting into the business on the writing and directing side of things, but that never really panned out for him. In all, Pickford appeared in more than 130 movies between 1908 and 1928. Pickford met actress and Ziegfeld girl Olive Thomas at a beach cafe in Santa Monica Pier. Pickford and Thomas eloped on October 25, 1916 in New Jersey. No one from their respective families was present, and the only witness to the event was film star Thomas Megan. The couple would have no children of their own, though the couple did adopt Thomas's then six-year-old nephew when his mother died. This marriage was known to be rocky and awfully turbulent. For many years, the Pickfords had intended 
to vacation together, and with their marriage on the rocks, the couple decided to take a second honeymoon. In August of 1920, the pair traveled to Paris, hoping to combine a vacation with some film preparations. On the night of September 5th, 1920, the couple went out for a night of entertainment and partying at the famous bistros in a section of Paris. They returned to their room at the hotel around 3 a.m. It was rumored Thomas may have been taking cocaine that night, though it was never proven. She was intoxicated and tired and took a large dose of mercury bichloride, a common item for bathroom cleaning. She was taken to the American Hospital in Paris suburb where Pickford, together with his former brother-in-law, Owen Moore, remained at her side until she succumbed to the poison a few days later. Rumors had arisen that she had either tried to commit suicide or had been murdered. A police investigation followed as well as an autopsy, and Thomas's death was ruled accidental. Pickford would marry two more times. On July 31st, 1922, he married Marilyn Miller, a Broadway dancer and former Ziegfeld girl. This marriage would last until 1926, when Miller was granted a divorce in 1927. Again, this marriage was rocky and seemingly trouble-filled. Pickford's personal demons and excesses led to much of the marriage's issues. Pickford had a type, and that type was Ziegfeld Girl. So with that in mind, Pickford's final marriage was to 22-year-old Mary Mulhern, a former Ziegfeld Girl. The two were wed on August 12, 1930. Not too long after the marriage, things were already starting to fall apart. Two years in, Mulhern would leave Pickford, claiming he mistreated her throughout the marriage. She was granted divorce in 32, which hadn't yet been finalized at the time of Pickford's death in 1933. Now let's roll it back a bit as we head into the end times of Jack Pickford. In 1932, Pickford visited his sister Mary at her home, the legendary Pickfair. According to Mary, he looked quite ill and emaciated. Mary would later say that she felt a premonition as she watched her brother leave. As he left, Mary later wrote that she stood there and watched him go, and in her voice told her, that's the last time you'll see Jack. Jack Pickford, aged 36, died at the American Hospital of Paris on January 3rd, 1933. The cause for his death was given as progressive multiple neuritis, which attacked all the nerve centers. This cause of death was believed to be due to his alcoholism. His sister Mary arranged for his body to be returned to Los Angeles, where he was interred in the private Pickford plot at Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Glendale, California. For his contributions to the motion picture industry, Jack Pickford has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, located at 1523 Vine Street. Now that we've taken a look at the fellas of the film... How about we turn our attention to the leading lady of the movie, and that would be Mary Bryan, who was born Louise Birdie Dantzler in Corsicana, Texas, on February 17th, 1906, a town I only knew as being a prolific producer of fruitcakes, turns out also makes great actresses. Her father, Mary Bryan's father, died not long after she was born, prompting her family to move to the bigger Dallas, Texas. In the early 1920s, the Dancer clan moved again, this time to the West Coast, into Long Beach, California. In 1922-ish, at the age of 16, she was discovered in a local bathing beauty contest. One of the judges of the, was film star Esther Ralston. So, for the drinking game of the movie contest, this is your second, and I believe, final drink of the game of the day of the episode, so cheers to you. Apparently, she didn't win the $25 grand prize for the contest, but Ralston reportedly said, you've got to give the little girl something. 
So her bonus prize was an interview by director Herbert Brennan for a role in his upcoming film adaptation of Peter Pan. This FaceTime with a successful film director was just the opening young Louise needed to get into the motion picture industry. It went so well, Brennan cast her in the lead role of Wendy Darling opposite Betty Bronson's Peter Pan in the 1924 release. The picture also starred Esther Ralston as Miss Darling. For this picture and going forward, the studio renamed her Mary Bryant. The movie studio who created her stage name for the movie and said she was 16 instead of 18 because the latter sounded too old for the role, then signed her to a long-term contract. 1925 would see the reunion of director Herbert Brennan and the newly christened Mary Bryan. In 1925's The Street of Forgotten Men, starring Mary as Mary Van Hearn. Incidentally, this film is also notable as the debut of future icon Louise Brooks in an uncredited role. Bryan was dubbed the sweetest girl in pictures. On loan out to MGM, she played a college belle, Mary Abbott, opposite Billy Haynes, opposite Billy Haynes in Brown of Harvard, which we're going to talk about a little later. This led to her being named one of Wampus Baby Stars in 1926, along with Mary Astor, Dolores Costello, Joan Crawford, Dolores Del Rio, Janet Gaynor, Faye Ray. The names are legendary. I think we've talked about the Wampus folks before, but it's been a while, so let's give a, a quick once over Wampus. That was a promotional campaign sponsored by the United States Western Association of Motion Picture Advertisers that honored 13 young actresses each year who they believed were on the threshold of stardom. These campaigns ran from 22 to 1934 with a couple exceptions. During her time working at Paramount, Bryant would appear in more than 40 movies as the lead, the ingenue, or a co-star. She reteamed with Brennan once again in 1926 when she played Isabel Rivers in P.C. Wren's Bo Jest starring Ronald Coleman. Sound comes for all silent stars and Mary Bryant was no different. Her first sound appearance, like William Haynes, came in 1928's partial talkie, Varsity, opposite Buddy Rogers. After successfully making the transition to sound, she co-starred with Gary Cooper, Walter Houston, and Richard Arlen in The Virginian in 1929. This would be her first all-sound feature. In it, she played the spirited frontier heroine, school marm, Marley, Molly Stark Wood, who was the love interest of Gary Cooper's eponymous Virginian. Her contract with Paramount ended in 1932, but her film work never slowed down. The decade of the 30s would see her appear in nearly 40 films. Brian decided to freelance, which was unusual in an era when multi-year contracts with one studio were commonplace. She would even take the stage during this time. When World War II occurred in 1941, Brian began traveling to entertain the troops, spending most of the war years traveling the world with the USO and entertaining servicemen from the South Pacific to Europe, even into Italy and North Africa. Flying to England on a troop shoot, Mary got caught in the Battle of the Bulge and spent the Christmas of 1944 with the soldiers fighting the battle. Well, she wasn't fighting the battle, the soldiers were fighting, but she was with the soldiers who were fighting the battle. She appeared in only a handful of films thereafter. Her last performance in film was in Dragnet, 1947. Over the course of 22 years, Brian had appeared in more than 79 movies. Like many older actresses during the 50s, Brian created a career for herself in television. Perhaps her most notable role was playing the title character's mother in Meet Corliss Archer in 1954. Although she was engaged numerous times and linked romantically to numerous Hollywood men, including Cary Grant and... Jack Pickford, 
Bryant had only two husbands. The first and shortest was to magazine illustrator John Whitcomb, a marriage that lasted all of six weeks. The second was to film editor George Tomasini. This union lasted from 47 until Tomasini's death on November 22, 1964. If the name George Tomasini sounds familiar, that's because it is. Tomasini served as the film editor on nine Alfred Hitchcock movies between 54 and 64. This list includes Rear Window, North by Northwest, Psycho, and The Birds, as well as a host of other classics. Mary Bryan, her life would come to an end when she died of natural causes on December 30th, 2002 at a retirement home in Del Mar, California at the age of 96. She is buried in Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Hollywood Hills. Her final resting place can be found in the Eternal Love section, Lot 4134 and Space 2. In 1960, Brian was inducted into the Hollywood Walk of Fame with the motion picture star also on Vine Street at 1559 Vine Street. Now, before we fully enroll in this flick, Let's look back at the films that brought us here. Actually, let's roll it back further and look at the book that led to the films. Well, if we're truly going to get the backstory of this story, we need to go all the way back to 1906 and the Broadway play that begat the multi-platform world that is Brown of Harvard. The only way to start this journey is with a look at the creator of it, Rita Johnson Young. The playwright was born on February 28, 1875 in Baltimore, Maryland. She started her career on the acting side for various New York-based companies before changing lanes as working and working as a music publisher. She then combined her acting and musical experiences into a career as a playwright with a pension for writing songs in her works. Her first staged play was called Lord Byron, and it was produced in 1900 by actor-producer James Young. She would eventually be married to Young from 1904 to 1910. Now that all brings us to 1906 and the opening of Brown of Harvard, her first Broadway work. We can turn to the Harvard Crimson for some cool information about the birth of the play's concepts. The Harvard Crimson, in case you didn't know, is the stu student newspaper of the Harvard University and was founded way back in 1873. In fact, saying it's just a student paper sells it a bit short. It's actually the only daily newspaper in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The film version of this publication will make a few cameos in the Brown of Harvard that we're about to watch, while the real-world version will give us some fascinating insights of the day into the history of the various adaptations of this podcast episode's film du jour. In an article entitled, Graduate First Nighter Tells of Opening of Brown of Harvard in 1906 and Describes Work of Its Author, published on April 9, 1926, Though no author is attributed, the mystery Harvardite writes, The author, Miss Rita Johnson Young, conceived the idea of writing a play dealing with Harvard while she was still a student at Radcliffe. Her, contract, her contact there with Harvard students and Harvard life gave her ample opportunity to gather data for the play which she was contemplating. At the time, she had no definitely formulated plan of writing for the theater, but merely played with the idea of a drama on Harvard in the same way that other college students so often play with similar vague schemes. The article continues, Later, however, when she was in New York deep in dramatic work, she recalled her former plan. At the time she started on this play, she had already one entitled Lord Byron produced, 
but it was not until Brown of Harvard came that she scored her first real success. The Broadway production of Brown of Harvard opened at the Princess Theater on 29th Street on February 26, 1906, and would run for 101 performances, ultimately closing in May of 1906. The stage set consisted of three main settings, Brown's room in his Harvard dorm, Harvard Yard, and the Boathouse. Various New York publications took to the printed word to review Broadway's newest show. The February 27th edition of the New York Herald reviewed it thusly. The betrayal of a Radcliffe College girl by a Harvard student and the prominence given to the affair as played, as, a, as the play developed clearly displeased a large proportion of the audience. Glimpses into typical student sanctums, the ten and frolic of good fellowship, the chat of the crew, snatches of college songs, and the harmless flirtations of the town and campus were the pleasant features of the piece. Meanwhile, also February 27, 1906, saw the New York Evening Post write the following. Miss R.J. Young's Brown of Harvard, which was performed last evening before a large body of spectators in the Princess Theater, is chiefly interesting, perhaps, as an illustration of the female notion of what university life is or ought to be. While reviews were fairly good on the stages of Broadway, folks at Harvard were less impressed. In an article from the Harvard Crimson dated April 26, 1926, replayed the Harvard crowd reactions to the play. They write, About a score of years ago, the heart of Harvard University was torn with maddened anguish. A Radcliffe lady, Miss Rita Johnson Young, had perpetrated a play called Brown of Harvard. It was like nothing the staid precincts of Harvard Yard had ever seen or hoped to see. Conservative alumni gnashed their teeth in impotent frenzy. Undergraduates not conservative at all greeted the Boston opening of the play with senescent garden produce. In case you were curious, the article is describing the throwing of rotten produce. Senescence means the condition or process of deterioration with age. So the throwing of rotten stuff. This production did not sit well with Harvard Yard, but later versions of the play would see different reactions in campus. And by different reactions, I mean different things were thrown at the stage. The same article from the Harvard Crimson explains, the fate, of the, the fate of Brown of Harvard when it appeared in a revival a short time later as a musical comedy was a little happier. On this occasion, the resourceful undergraduate abandoned vegetables for alarm clocks, and pretty chorus ladies were driven off the stage in a panic by a barrage of timepieces. Brown of Harvard was thereafter permitted to slumber for several years, until at last the movie producer nosed it out. In, the 19, in 1907, the play was turned into a novel written by Rita Johnson Young and Gilbert Coleman. Now, let's move on from Airborne Clock and Fruit of Harvard and move on to the silver screens of Hollywood, or wherever they were filming flicks at the time. The, fir the first try at a cinematic Brown of Harvard came in 1911 in a film written and directed by Colin Campbell. It was released by the Selig Polyscope Company on December 21st, 1911, and starred Edger, Edgar G. Wynn as the titular Brown. As late 1918 came around, a second version of Brown of Harvard would see a wide release. This time it would be written and directed by Harry Beaumont. This one starred Tom Moore as Tom Brown, and was released officially on December 27th, 1918. This one featured a bit of real football action with the Washington State University football team and its coach, William Lone Star Dietz, 
participating in filming while in Southern California for the 1916 Rose Bowl. Neither of these adaptations really did much to set the world on fire. And to my eyes, they were both they both sound incredibly different from the 1926 version we are about to discuss. I look forward to tracking down a copy of the novel and see how the differences play out in the story. The 1911 and 1918 versions have a similar storyline, while the 26 model seems wildly different. The character of Tom Brown is the only character to appear in all three versions. I definitely think the novel written by Rita Johnson Young and Gilbert Coleman holds a key to seeing how this play slash book to film transition really broke down. Young wrote book and wrote the book and lyrics to the operetta Naughty Marietta, composer Victor Herbert's greatest success. Produced by Oscar Hammerstein, it opened at New York Theater in 1910, ran for 136 performances, and was frequently revived. A film version from the 19 a film version from 1935 was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Picture. Her play The Marriage Bond was adapted into a 1916 film with the same name. Young wrote the lyrics of Kiss, Waltz, and Mother in 1916, both of which were set to music by Sidman Romberg. In a career that spanned from 1911 to 1924, Rita Johnson Young regularly had works being acted out on Broadway stages, and many of these productions would have incredibly long runs of action. In amongst the stage work, she also wrote the screenplay for the 1919 Bessie Love film, The Little Boss. In 1926, the talented playwright died in Stamford, Connecticut after a long struggle with breast cancer. She was just 51 years old, and in a sad bit of terrible timing, Young died on May 8, 1926, only six days after the premiere of the 1926 adaptation of her Brown of Harvard, the same Brown of Harvard we are about to talk about right now, I think. Yeah, how about we talk about it? Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer presents Brown of Harvard with Jack Pickford, Mary Bryan, Mary Alden, Francis X. Bushman Jr., and William Haynes as Tom Brown. Adapted by Donald Ogden Stewart from Rita Johnson Young's celebrated stage play with a screenplay by A.P. Younger and directed by Jack Conway. And speaking of the director of this film, Jack Conway, we can't ignore him as we talk about the people that brought this movie together. The director was born Hugh Ryan Conway on July 17, 1887 in Graceville, Minnesota. Conway got his start in showbiz by acting on stage and in front of the camera. In 1911, he joined up with D.W. Griffith's stock company of players. It was there he found a home acting in westerns. His repertoire would expand and his as would his resume. Between 1909 and 1921, he would appear in over 75 films. Now, as the movie begins, we learn Tom Brown was preparing to go to Harvard. It's in this little bit that we learn Tommy Boy is a bit of a womanizer, his room filled with mementos of past love. This is also where we see the affluence from which Tom Brown was raised. He lives with his parents in a huge, grand mansion with a killer staircase. They have butlers, servants. They all walk around in their finest clothes. This is where we get our first glimpse of Tom's parents. They are played here by David Torrance as Mr. Brown and Mary Alden as Miss Brown. This is not the last we will see of these folks. Don't cry, mother, the husband implores. Your boy is not going to Yale. He is going to Harvard. Now, to all our listeners who support Yale, 
We here at the Golden Silent Films podcast in no way condone or promote such anti-Yale sentiment. And for all our listeners who back Harvard, we can't agree with Tom's dad enough and fully endorse all of his views. Both parents run the traditional gamut of child leaving for college emotions as they share their final for now meal with their boy. Father consoles his emotional wife. These supper plans are cut short, though, when Tom tells his mother that the fellows are giving me a little goodbye party. You don't mind, he asks his mom. And with that, Tom heads out, leaving his parents behind. We zip ahead in time and find ourselves in Cambridge, and more specifically, Harvard, the destination of Tom Brown. Student. Cool footage of Harvard, from which what I read is maybe the only stuff filmed on location for this movie. We get glimpses of Memorial Hall, Widener Library, Appleton Gate, Harvard Square, and Harvard Station, the Boston subway. It's a fun little travelogue for folks who've never been to the hallowed grounds of the Cambridge campus. Tom and his buddies are yucking it up on a train. It's all laughs for these bros before that was even a thing. And they are honoring the time-honored tradition of laughing at nerds heading to school. And I'm sure they are all talking about what big nerds everyone is as they laugh. We are next introduced to Jim Doolittle, played by Jack Pickford. He tries to chat up Tom on the train. Jim asks if Tom is headed to Harvard too. Tom replies, I can stand it, if Harvard can. Jim introduces himself and Tom introduces himself as Barney Google. Tom and his buddies have a hearty laugh at Jim's expense. What a dork he is. As Tom heads out of the train car, he sees some attractive young ladies boarding. He quickly reverses course and reboards before chatting up those young ladies. No move is spared as the smooth Tom Brown lays down some game, and we fade out. As we start to settle in and really see the character of Tom Brown in action, the genesis of Haynes' interpretation deserves a quick little detour. Again, we turn to William Mann as he writes, his, his, William Haynes, his inspiration came from the once great star Charles Ray, who had specialized in the backwoods yokel dropped down in the middle of a big city. Although Ray's star had dimmed by 1926, Billy had loved his pictures in the past. Ray was a strikingly handsome lad, and many had commented on Billy's physical resemblance to him. So I determined to take a Charles Ray character turn him inside out, and make him the freshest punk that ever drew breath, Haynes would add. Tom finally manages to emerge from the subway and make his way through the rough, tough streets of Cambridge. Like any lost traveler, Tom meanders about in search of his dorm. He comes across a group of guys hanging out on a stoop. He asks for some directional assistance, and these dudes point him in a direction. Not the right one, but a direction nonetheless. These tricky bastards jokingly sent him to the Dicky Clubhouse, filled with dudes way too cool to welcome any freshman dweeb, even if he is a self-professed cool dude like Tommy Brown is. A cute gal in a nearby car laughs at the hoodwinked freshman before eventually explaining the situation he found himself in. He follows her explanation by charmingly asking for the correct directions, which she kindly provides. Tom continues the charm show as her father returns to the car, and lets Tom know the situation. My name is Abbott. I'm sort of a professor here, the man explains. And this young lady is sort of my daughter, he adds. To which Tom Brown replies, Well, 
I guess I sort of better be going. Before we get back to Tom shenanigans, that daughter we just met was our first look at Mary Bryan as Mary Abbott, and her father, Professor Abbott, played by Edward Connolly. We are now in the third house on the second street, the dwelling Brown was looking for earlier. Inside, we see Jim Doolittle, you remember him, in the dorm as well. As he stands around, a bunch of other dudes are having a good time singing and playing ukulele and otherwise causing a commotion. One says, in front of Jim, mind you, says, I was supposed to room with that Doolittle shrimp, but after one flash at him, nothing doing. How impolite, discourteous, bad-mattered, insolent, uncouth, and downright rude. Jim Doolittle tries to join the impromptu jam sesh with his accordion, but the other guys close the door on him and his squeeze box. Even fouler, more impertinent, more disrespectful, impudent, churlish, more insulting, and crasser still. These jerks are really feeling themselves. One fellow, McAndrews, Bob McAndrews, is feeling especially frisky. In fact, he feels the need to get out all the luggage that he feels doesn't belong in his area. The only problem with this plan is that one of the trun trunks belongs to Tom Brown, who is quite ready to let him know. So, we're going to take a look at Francis X. Bushman Jr. here, playing Bob McAndrews. Ralph Everly Bushman was born on May 1st, 1903, in Baltimore, Maryland, hometown of his father. That would make him the son of silent film star and one-time king of the movies, Francis X. Bushman, and his first wife, Josephine Flaudon Duval. He would appear in over 50 films between 1920 and 1943, before dying on April 16, 1978, in Los Angeles, California. And as a bit of a tease for the next episode of the podcast, this actor here was the genesis in a roundabout way for the next episode. So do come back and hear that episode and what came from this little blurb. The two size each other up. McAndrews backs off first, choosing to sit and read. Tom Brown cracks a joke about the other fellow's piety before exploring the adjoining bedroom and claiming a bed. The only issue is that Brown has claimed McAndrews' bed. Brown continues to act flippant, as his character is wont to do when confronted by the bigger dude. Brown gives up, saying, I wouldn't room with you, you big sea lion. You bark too loud. Brown makes his way through the assembled doormates, adding, Now I've got to dig up parking space with some guy who's human. Thus begins the fateful relationship between Tom Brown and Jim Doolittle. The scrawny freshman asks Tom, My roommate didn't show up. Won't you come in with me? Tom takes Jim up on his offer and the two head out, not before Tom leaves the others with a sarcastic last word. Soon, Jim is carrying all of Tom's luggage and trunk and setting it all down in their shared room. Here, Jim explains the Dickey Honor Society to the curious Tom. Of course, Tom starts cracking wise about the Fru-Fru Society, but Jim warns him not to make those jokes or he'll never be asked to join. In true Tom Brown fashion, he replies, that would be tough on my grandchildren, wouldn't it? The person personality of Tom Brown here is off the charts, which means the personality and charm of Billy Haynes is off the charts as well. And that is one thing you get from this movie. Every time he is on screen, he just commands it, he owns it, he's super charming. Even when he's doing stuff that make him kind of a skis, he's a skis in the moment, but then he comes back and does something charming, and you're like, ah... Oh. I like this guy. 
So we get a bit of fun banter between Dom and Jim, which soon turns to Tom really ingratiating himself with the other dorm dwellers. Some uke playing by Tom really brings the house together. They invite him out to a fancy restaurant for lunch, but Brown says only if the invite includes his new friend Jim. This really wins over the studious Doolittle. He tells Tom he's a great fella. In some chit-chat between the two friends, we learn Tom has a chic belt, that he, what he calls a chic belt. He explains that every time a girl falls for him, he cuts a notch in it. As they talk more, Tom notices Jim all bundled up. What's the idea of the horse blanket and foot mittens, he asks. Jim explains, I catch cold very easily if my feet get wet. Brown replies, forget it, walk on your hands then. And the two laugh. Turning back to the life of Jack Conway, though, he was tearing it up and acting, but his cinematic interest would start to shift. Though he still got some acting in, he started directing more and more. He would take the helm for a handful of shorts between 1912 and 1915. The job switch solidified when he started working for Universal for five years, spread over two separate stints. Not too long after, the director signed on to work for MGM, where he would remain until 1948. So, back to the film. Freshmen, we are told of Tom and Jim's current status as they stroll through campus. Tom, however, has had enough learning for the day and suggests they cut some classes. Being the wise, young sage he is, Jim replies, Tom, don't you think we ought to make the most of our opportunities? We might regret it later if we waste them now. And that, in a nutshell, is the theme of this movie. Tom never living up to his potential, never giving his best effort. Tom takes a moment to breathe in what Jim just said before replying, Okay, you've sold your sermon, do. Me for the classroom. And again, we really see how much Jim idolizes and looks up to Tom. After the two-part academic ways, Tom sees a young gal of his affections from earlier, Mary Abbott, the professor's daughter. He reminds her of their earlier meeting. She is still not too impressed. She is carrying some groceries, which Tom is more than happy to carry home for her. As they walk, he continues to put on a charm. Soon he is asking her to go to Gwen Pomeroy's dance. She thanks him for the invite, but explains that she has already accepted Bob McAndrews' invitation to the dance. From a distance, the aforementioned Bob sees the two walking. Wanting the walk to continue, Tom keeps dropping the groceries and hopes the two will walk back to the grocer and he gets more time with the girl. This is a super funny bit. By today's standards, Tom comes off looking like a bit of an a-hole, but it still made me chuckle and certainly played into the standard equation of a Billy Haynes role that would define this era of his career. Start off as a jerk and eventually become a beloved aw shucks hero by the rolling of credits. And Tom Brown will get even jerkier as the film progresses, trust me. But for now, Mary arrives home and takes leave of Tom Brown. As she heads in, Tom carves another notch in his belt. Fast forward to the Gwen Pomeroy dance party. Stick in the Mud, a.k.a. Bob McAndrews, is sitting with Mary being all boring and stuff. In the next room, a wild and crazy Tom Brown is living, living it up, dancing like his life depends on it. Mary can't help but smile as she watches the free-dancing, freewheeling life Tom Brown is having with everyone else in the other room. Tom looks back at her as boring Bob talks about college sports. Blech. I'm going to be the stroke of the freshman crew if, I, if hard work will get me there, Mary, the jock explains. Not to be outdone, Tom comes waltzing into the conversation. 
I just decided that maybe I'm going to be stroke of that crew, he interjects, in an effort to impress the girl. Mary says she had no idea Tom was into that sort of thing. The two flirt over stroke talk before Tom asks for this dance, which Mary accepts. Just to put an emphasis on things, Tom hands Bob a book before the two head off. It's called How to Play Solitaire. Sick burn. Cool. A sick but cool burn. So now the couple is outside, having a shoe dancing for a more intimate conversation outside, under the stars. But the chit-chat gets out of hand as Tom forces himself on Mary. As this is happening, Bob comes out. Mary finally pushes herself free and demands Bob take her home. Tom tries to apologize, but to no avail. Tom tries to calm the situation with Bob, but he is having none of it. It's pretty much of a mucker who kisses girls when he has no serious intentions, Bob explains. Tom, as always, laughs it off before cracking a few jokes at Bob's expense before Mary and Bob take off. If you were looking for efficiency in filming, you shouldn't look any further than the filming of Brown in Harvard. In fact, this film only took three weeks start to finish to film. So, back to the movie. The next time we see Bob, he is looking for Tom. Tell Tom Brown I want to see him outside. If he's not afraid... Tom Brown pops out, Jim in tow. The two men, plus a large throng of looky-loos, head outside for some fisticuffs. Bob says he is going to teach Tom to respect women. Bob throws the first punch, knocking Tom down. Tom gets up and the fight starts in earnest, Jim cheering his friend on. Soon, though, police come running in and the fight breaks up as everyone scatters. Tom and Jim are convinced that Tom had the fight won, but Tom remarks, You know, do... I sort of think McAndrews was right. Well, I acted pretty rotten toward a very fine girl, he adds. It's the next day and both men are next to each other in the boat at crew practice. Better improve that, better improve that form, McAndrews, if you expect to stroke a crew, the coach yells. Conversely, the coach is quite encouraging to Tom, which displeases Bob quite a bit. It's later and Tom watches crew practice from afar, having not made the team. He and Mary run into each other lakeside. He starts to lay the charm on again. He asks if she came to watch him, to which she says she didn't, and she is sorry that he didn't make the team. At the same time, Bob has just injured his hand while rowing as Tom and Mary were getting closer. He tells her he was never so keen about a girl in his life. He is crazy about her and he wants her. Just when she thinks he is being genuine and honest, he grabs her and starts to forcefully kiss her again. I should have known better than to have trusted you again, she yells and pushes him off. Again. He tries to explain himself and how his feelings are genuine, but she refuses to listen and runs off. It's the night before the Yale versus Harvard race. We have the comedic pleasure of watching a drunk Tom Brown make his way home from some partying. He refuses to pay for his cab, insisting the driver charge it to, Arv to Harvard, since he is one of his sons. Jim is shocked to see the state Tom is in. And there's good reason why. Jim explains, Tom, listen, the coach was here. McAndrews has a bad hand again. You've got a row tomorrow. Drunk Tom doesn't quite get the gist of what Tom, Jim is trying to say. But being the helpful friend he is, Jim tries to get Tom to bed and cover up for him as teammates question the whereabouts of Tom Brown. The inebriated Tom continues to make life hard for his friend. Pushed to his limit, Jim gives him a friendly punch to the face that knocks out the drunk. 
for a bit at least, and Jim tries to calm him. It's 9.30 the next morning as the observation trains awaited the start of the freshman race. Bob, Mary, and Professor Abbott watch on with the assembled crowd. Jim is in the crowd too, placing bets for Harvard to win. The race starts and the crowd goes wild. Yale starts in the lead. Yale by a length early on. Harvard starts a comeback though. Jim is going nuts in the crowd as his best pal pushes them past Yale. For the time being, at least. It's not long before the hungover Tom, Tom starts to peter out, causing Yale to take the lead. Tom basically passes out and Yale blows by to win the rivalry race, much to the chagrin of everyone watching, especially Jim and Mary. After the race, back in Cambridge, a few days before vacation, Tom is persona non grata around campus. And he is especially heartbroken as Mary and her father walk by. The father remarks, I feel sorry for a boy who makes the kind of mistake Brown made. The two meet up with Bob McAndrews as we fade out. Through the summer vacation at home, Tom determines to forget Harvard. He has a heart-to-heart -heart with his dad. His dad asks about the next semester, to which Tom replies, I'm not going back to Harvard. I can't. His dad asks what happened, and Tom explains how he got stewed and lost the big race. Papa Brown dishes out some wisdom to the college boy. He tells Tom, You can't just let one mistake beat you, Tom, my boy. Wise words for anybody, Harvard crew team member or not. Tom adds to this, add, Tom, Tom adds to his tale, though. But it wasn't only one mistake. There was a girl, he explains. Tom's dad's not angry about all this. He's just disappointed, which is way worse. He had hoped his son would always keep the brown name clean. You've got me wrong, Dad. She is the girl I love. Being the motivational speaker he seems to be, Dad tells his son, If she's that kind of girl, Tom, you can't quit. You must go back and fight for her. The two embrace, and we fade out to... Once more, Harvard. Tom is back and now residing in Claverly Hall, and he is reunited with his half-pint buddy, Jim. Doolittle didn't think Tom would return, but this was the call of pigskin that brought him back, Tom says. I thought I'd come back and help Harvard lose a couple football games, he explains. Upon seeing his friends return, Jim asks if Tom had seen Mary yet. The normally jovial Tom turns his smile upside down into a frown. I don't think she wants to see me, do, he tells his friend. Tom quickly changes the subject and deflects it back to football as Jim says he's going to try out for the school chess team. For now, let's leave Tom's return to Harvard so we can return to our biographical substory of director Jack Conway. We left off with him being hired by MGM in 1925. There he was a contract director, a good hand, a reliable force behind the camera who worked within the confines and expectations of the studio, turning in quality work in bu on budget and on time. Though part of a big machine, he turned out some of his best work during his MGM tenure. Some of his most well-known and successful works came during this time. Those included 1934's Viva Via, which garnered four Academy Award nominations, A Tale of Two Cities in 1935, and Libel Lady in 1936, which received its own Academy Award nomination for Best Picture. In fact, all three of these films were nominated for Best Picture. Conway and director Edmund Golding share the honor, or lack thereof, of having the most Best Picture nominations 
without ever being nominated for a Best Director award. And that would be a three apiece. And for all the Lon Chaney fans out there, Conway also directed the 1930s sound remake of The Unholy Three. The silent original was directed by Todd Browning in 1925, which also starred the legendary Lon Chaney. Now we return to our sports section of the film as Tom began football practice with the counsel of his father fresh in his mind. We get some footage of the practice and the old-timey football, leather helmets and all. The ever-hopeful Tom sees Mary in the stands. He can't bring himself to talk to her, but finally musters up the courage and runs up to her. He tells her it is great to see her again. The meeting, though, is about as awkward as you'd expect. He asks if he can call her later, but she responds, I do not care to see you tonight or any other night. He fires back, you're making a big mistake. I am awfully good company, he says. After some awkward comedy, Mary tries to leave. Tom blocks her. What's the matter, Mary? Afraid to be friends with a fellow just because he's in the wrong? Tom asks. He laughs as Mary reiterates how she feels about him. Bob steps in and runs Tom off. Tom makes jokes in light of the situation, as is his usual coping mechanism. So let's leave the romance angle for a bit and talk some official football squad gossip. We read Tom Brown and Pod Hayden have been dropped from the squad on the eve of departure for rest before the Yale game. Also another football and general pep related news, we learned the freshman squad since the addition of Bunny Farham has shown a noticeable increase in both pep and teamwork. Do with that information as you will. But for all our needs, the first bit of the news is what matters most, and it breaks the heart of Jim Doolittle to read about that in the Crimson Harvard. And Jim is quite sick and bedridden at this time. Tom sees him reading it and the sadness rolling over him. Ever the optimist, Jim says, I'm sorry, Tom, but better luck next year. As Tom rubs Vic's VapoRub, or the 1920s equivalent of it, on Jim's chest, he explains, Mother and Dad are coming to the game. It'll be tough to tell them I've been dropped. Tom gets a little emotional at the thought. He leaves Jim to go meet up with his parents. Jack puts his hat on and coat and runs out into the cold and super rainy night. There's a good deal of conscious or unconscious homoeroticism in Brown of Harvard. Jim loves Tom far more than Tom loves Mary, the ostensible love interest. Tom is devoted to Jim as well. The director, Ernst Lubisch, said he'd jacked up the underlying homoeroticism in The Student Prince when he realized Ramon Navarro was gay. Conway may have done the same, may have done something similar here. Brown of Harvard is, bottom line, a love story between Tom and Jim, writes William Mann. So we're back in the football world and seeing the team. They see that Brown hasn't shown up. Since he had been dropped from the squad, he has no intention of showing up. The coach calls Brown's dorm. Jim answers and is told, the squad's waiting to leave. Where the devil is Brown? Jim replies, why, the Crimson said that Tom was dropped from the squad. Apparently, it was a fake news situation. Dropped nothing. Who's running this team? The Crimson or me? The coach yells back. The frown on Jim's face instantly turns upside down with this revelation. Tell him to get here in 20 minutes or he will be off the squad. The unwell Jim slams the phone down, throws on some clothes, and makes his way out in the cold and rain in an effort to catch up to his best friend. Tom had just gotten on the trolley and it starts to take off. Jim is just seconds too late and his only option is to jump on the back of the cart as it drives off 
and rides it in the cold as the rain pours down on the immune-compromised Jimbo. A conductor sees the daring do going on in the back of the trolley. He orders an emergency stop. Tom runs out to see with a commotion and finds Jim laying in the street. He picks him up. Jim can only muster a few words. Sickly, he tells Tom, The team, they're waiting on you. The well-being of Jim takes over Tom. He has to get the kid back to bed. He carries Jim to a nearby cab and get him, gets him to safety. It's now the morning of the Yale-Harvard game, and we are at the Stillman Infirmary. Mary Abbott is at Jim's bedside. Jim looks absolutely terrible. He is super sick at this point, but even in the throes of sickness, his concern for Tom is ever green. Honest, Mary, Tom's a great fellow. I've always wanted to be like him, he tells her. If you knew him the way I do, you'd be leaving him, Mary, he adds. He loves you. Won't you please promise to give him a chance? Now we flip back to the football field. It's 2 o'clock at Harvard Stadium. The crowds are pouring in. Now this is some cool footage. Not sure where this was filmed, but it was cool to see the throngs of people marching towards the stadium. This looks like it's footage from a real sporting event, so it's cool to see footage of this time of such a huge crowd. It would be even cooler if it was an authentic Harvard crowd, but... Who the heck knows after all this time? Tom's parents are settling into their seats. Mr. Brown asks a nearby fan why Tom isn't in the starting lineup. Mr. Brown gets more of an answer than he bargained for. The fan replies, Say, Brown lost a boat race for Harvard last year because he got drunk, and they say he was drunk again last night. Needless to say, Mr. Brown is not happy to hear this. We also see Mary and her father getting into their seats for the big game, just as Yale makes their way onto the pitch. This point of the film gives us a super cool cameo. Not that you can really see him on the field as a Yale football player, but trust me that John Wayne is there. This uncredited role as a Yale football player gave the former Marion Morrison his first snippet of screen time. The future Duke didn't get his start as a star. His first studio work came with Fox Film Corporation as a member of what was called a swing gang. This meant he was involved with props and moving furniture and equipment around for filmmakers. Being the big dude he was, he stood in for scenes as an extra, like he does here as a football player in Brown of Harvard, and again in 1927's Dropkick. His time as an extra wouldn't last long. Dwayne's first starring role came in 1930 with the Raoul Walsh-directed 1930 film The Big Trail. So, with Yale having taken the field, it is Harvard's turn to take the field. A distraught Tom Brown makes his way to the bench as the game gets ready to start. After the coin toss, we find out Yale will kick off to Harvard. As I said, Tom looks horrible. Gone is the nice hair and smiley disposition. He looks beat down watching the game from the bench. Now, we get some pigskin action on the old gridiron. This was some really neat game footage. It was filmed really well and super fun to see football being played from this era. You really don't get to see these kinds of highlights in game action very often, and as a football fan myself, it was super fun. This is when the game of football was dudes crashing into each other with leather helmets and minimal padding. It was a different time and really cool to see this all play out on film. As the game action continues, Bob McAndrews makes a huge touchdown saving tackle. The crowd goes wild. It's Yale's ball on Harvard's 15-yard line. There's an injury, and the coach is sending Tom in. His parents are ecstatic to see their boy get some game time. That nearby fan Mr. Brown talked to earlier says, Well, for crying out loud, 
They've put in that quitter Brown. Mr. Brown stands up for his boy. I'll have you understand that boy is no quitter. Bob McAndrews is a bit annoyed to see his rival on the field with him. Tom makes a big tackle to stop Yale, but Brown appears to suffer a leg injury on the play. He's taken off the field as that jerk says he always knew that Tom Brown was a quitter. Yale ends up taking the three points with a field goal to put them up 3-0 over Harvard. It's halftime of the big game. The team is in the locker room getting a pep talk as Tom gets his ankle taped up. We also get some footage of the school bands doing some school bandy stuff on the field. The coach tells the team, dig your toes in, hit them hard. This isn't ping pong, it's football. Where's your guts? As the speech goes down, Tom makes a phone call. He wants to speak to Jim's nurse. The coach sees this and yells, hey Brown, cut out that social stuff and come back here. The coach yells enough, which causes Tom to rejoin the team before he can talk to the nurse and get an update on his friend Tom, on his friend Jim. Now, get out there and fight, damn it. Fight for Harvard. He yells at the team. A worried Tom heads out onto the field with the rest of his squad. A little fast forward, and it's the last quarter. Yale's ball. It's been a defensive struggle with the score still 3-0 as time winds down. Another injury, and Tom is pleading his case to get back in the game. The coach goes for it, and Tom heads in. They've put that quitter in the game again, Harvard. Good night, that jerky fan yells. Another big goal line defensive stand forces a turnover. Harvard ball. A big pass to Brown leads to some big yardage for Harvard. His parents are going wild in the stands. Brown is tearing it up, basically single-handedly moving Harvard down the field. The crowd is going crazy, too. It's the two-minute warning, followed by another big offensive play for Brown. They are in a goal-to-go situation. In the huddle, the plan is to give it to Brown again. But he has other plans. They're expecting me to carry it again, he says. Let's fake it and give it to McAndrews, he explains. They go with Brown's plan. Touchdown! Harvard wins 6-3. The stadium goes nuts. Crowds rush the field. Brown moved the ball 90 yards with McAndrews finishing up the last three. Brown sneaks off as Mary runs up to congratulate Bob. He defers and gives the shine to Brown for winning the game. With the game finished, it seems right to finish up our look into the life of the Flicks director, Jack Conway. So we're going to look at his personal life in later years. His first marriage was to silent film actress Viola Berry. Together they had two children, including writer Rosemary Conway. His second marriage was to Virginia Bushman, daughter of silent screen star Francis X. Bushman. They had two children as well, including actor Pat Conway. They resided in Pacific Palisades, California. In fact, the street in Pacific Palisades, Jack Conway, is named for Conway. He retired from films in 1948 and died 40 years later at his home from pulmonary disease. Mary, so back to the film now. Mary and her father fight their way through the crowds. Meanwhile, Brown is at the infirmary. He gets to Jim's room as the nurse comes out crying. Doolittle didn't survive. Tom breaks down as Mary arrives. She consoles him as we fade out to an intertidal reading. But the sacrifice of today becomes a tradition of tomorrow. For youth must go on and life must go on. And the spirit of her immortal sons leads as Harvard goes on. Time has passed as Tom sits with Mary and his parents as a group of guys make their way to the dorm. It's the Dickey Club. They are on their way. Tom's father proclaims, Harvard's proud of you, Tom, and so are we. 
The, cl- the club comes in as Tom gets a kiss from Mary before being taken off by the group. Tom's father explains, It's the Dickies, the Honor Society. Every year they select the best men. Mary and Tom's Mary and Tom's parents look on as Tom joins Bob McAndrews and the rest of the group as they head off. And that is how Brown of Harvard comes to a conclusion. With the tale being told, let's dig into some thoughts and emotions about this movie, both from myself and from mystery Harvard writers of the past. So I really, really loved this movie. It was a fun watch with great looks at a bygone era of college shenanigans. The performance of William Haynes really was the show stealer for me. As someone who never even heard of the guy before I watched this movie, this really sold me on him as an actor and got me so invested in him that I really wanted to seek out books, seek out biographies, wanted to learn about as much about this guy as I could. And that's all because of this role here as Tom Brown. He was so good. He stole the show, like I said. He exuded such charm, personality. Like every time he was on screen, when he wasn't being an ass, when he wasn't being a jerk, he was... You fell in love with the guy. Like, his charm, his wit. Like, he just was a cool dude. Now, like I said, a way to judge the performance was to see how likable his character ends up being. Like, a lot of stuff he does in the film could make someone very unlikable. But in Haynes' hands, Tom was someone you always ended up rooting for. As we look at some professional views on Brown of Harvard, it's only appropriate to give the April 26, 1926 edition of the Harvard Crimson a look and see how the production was viewed on campus. The paper wrote, It was with a shock that Harvard learned the other day that the thing they thought dead had come to life again. And what a life! The whole freshman class arrives at Cambridge on one subway train, all playing ukuleles, all munching apples, according to the saddened reviewer of the Crimson Harvard. All the street and traffic signs in Hollywood must have been requisitioned to adorn the students' rooms. California cactus hedges are interspersed among the few authentic Harvard scenes. Surprise, surprise, the folks at Harvard were not big fans. Aside from the quality of the film, this movie had one major negative out of the gate, according to the Crimson Harvard, at least. The paper writes, Unkindest cut of all, it was a Yale man, Donald Ogden Stewart of Yale, who adapted the original Brown to the screen. Written by Radcliffe, revamped by Yale, Anyone knowing what a Harvard student thinks of these two contemporary centers of learning will not wonder that the Crimson Reviewer, while realizing the futility of bombarding an inanimate screen, still holds that the projection of even a strictly fresh egg would help tremendously in relieving the feelings. But, 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 a bunch of Ivy League nerds does not a review make. This movie was a hit across the states with the exception of Cambridge, Massachusetts, possibly. William Haynes was a star, and his good friend Irving Thalberg knew it from the beginning. But you could have fooled director Jack Conway. William Mann writes, Conway screened Brown for Thalberg after it had been cut and printed. Thalberg, who was often surrounded by yes-men, brought several of his assistants to watch the film. Confident in Billy's performance and Stewart's witty titles, Conway was stunned when the opening reels didn't produce so much as a snicker from the producer. I was dying, Conway recalled. It didn't seem possible. Suddenly the film broke and the lights came on. 
Irving was sitting down in front of all of us. He hadn't moved or made a sound. But now he turned around and said very slowly, Jack, if the last reels are as good as those we've seen, we've got the comedy hit of the year. And Irving Thalberg certainly knew what he was talking about. Brown and Harvard was a big business at the local box offices around the country. While costing $164,000, it made $276,000. It was a significant profit of more than $100,000. And those figures gave reason for Louis B. Mayer to shake Billy's hand and clap him on the back. So, as we lay this episode to rest, it is time to find out where your favorite silent stars are laid to rest. This is the segment where we join our favorite cinematic stars on the other side of the cemetery gates. The history, the art, the celebrity spectacle converge in Where Are They Now? Your guide to paying your respects to the film legends that have entertained us so much. On December 26, 1973, Billy Haynes died from lung cancer in Santa Monica, California at the age of 73. Not long afterward, March 6, 1974 to be exact, Jimmy Shields overdosed via sleeping pills. And it wasn't just a careless day with some pills, however. There was a suicide note which read, in part, Goodbye to all of you who have tried so hard to comfort me in my loss of William Haynes, who I have, have been with since 1926. I now find it impossible to go it alone. I am much too lonely. They are interred side by side in Woodlawn Memorial Cemetery in Santa Monica, California. If you find yourself at Woodlawn Cemetery and can enter the cemetery's mausoleum, the final resting places of Billy Haynes and Jimmy Shields can be found in Corridor W. We will have pictures of these mausoleum headstones in the Golden Silence Film Podcast social media locations if you want to take a look. And while we're digging into the eternal legacy of Billy Haynes, we can't forget about the world-famous Hollywood Walk of Fame and its memorial to our favorite Tom Brown. For his contribution to the motion picture industry, William Haynes has a star on that said Walk of Fame located at 7012 Hollywood Boulevard. Haynes was awarded the star on February 8, 1960. So, with the football game over and Tom Brown, a Harvard legend, we want to thank you for going back to school with us and being part of our show's first annual Back to School Scholastic Super School-tacular. Also in the spirit of the school year starting, this episode is dedicated to all the teachers out there working their butts off to teach our youths. They often have an incredibly tough job while not always getting the respect they deserve. So from everyone here at the Golden Silent Films Podcast, a huge, huge thank you to all you teachers out there. We really appreciate all the hard work you do. So what did you think of this movie? What are some of your favorite school-themed films? What are your most memorable rowing races in movies? Let us know all that and more at the various social media satellite campuses of the Golden Silence Podcast University. And if you have forgotten, we are on Instagram and Twitter. Let us know what you thought about this episode. What movies, past or present, do you want us to check out? Our world of silent cinema is always, always expanding, and we need your input to plot our future viewings. You can do all that at Golden Silence Cast on Instagram and at Golden Silence One on Twitter. And again, if you listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other podcast outlet that allows it, do subscribe, do rate, do review. It helps us like crazy here, and we love hearing your thoughts. We super, super appreciate all of your awesome support, and seeing how much all of you folks out there are listening 
only makes us want to make bigger and better episodes for all of you. And as the final class bell rings, we want to send a huge thank you and shout out to all of you fine listeners for all of your fine listening. And as always, do not forget, the silence are golden and the talkies, they're just a fad.